This is the podcast of Redemption Bible Church, where applicational preaching is a distinctive of our church. For more information, log on to redemptionfw.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning. I'm going to be reading in Acts chapter 7, starting at verse 54, and I'm going to go into chapter 8 and then stop in verse 4. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of the young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he, and when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Appreciate that. Can you guys say thank you, Sarah? Thank you, Sarah. Awesome. All right. Good morning, everybody. On uh, January 8th, 1956, 28-year-old missionary Jim Elliott and four others had an abrupt ending to their ministry when they were martyred by men from the Aka people in the remote jungles of Ecuador. You can see a picture of Jim up there. Years earlier in 1950, Jim Elliott had first felt the call to evangelize those yet-to-be-reached people. The years following 1956 were filled with training and preparation for the mission field in Ecuador, and uh, his, he and his wife, as well as others, had been diligently working to ready themselves for the ministry of sharing the gospel with that tribe. In 1956, they began making contact with the Aka people. They began by doing bucket drops of supplies and various gifts from an airplane. They figured that was probably a safe way to get to know this tribe and introduce themselves to this tribe that had been somewhat unknown, but certainly had a, a history of being violent. They had been encouraged by what seemed like friendly interactions with that tribe and when they started receiving gifts of headdresses, beads, and even a parrot back up from the ground. The missionaries decided it was time to make face-to-face contact with those people. For a handful of days, Jim and the others had a number of peaceful interactions with the tribesmen. But that was unfortunately short-lived. On that day in January 1956, instead of bringing peace, several of the tribesmen came with murder and spears in their hands. That day, Jim Elliott, Ed McCauley, Roger Udarian, Nate Saint, Pete Fleming would give their lives for the sake of the gospel. Over the past few weeks, we've heard from pastors Drew and Jamie as they've unpacked for us the ministry of Stephen. Just a page back in verses 612 and 613, we see that Stephen was seized, brought before the council, and false witnesses were set against him. He was charged with the offense of blasphemy, certainly a charge that would uh, bring much anger. Yet Stephen stood firm. He did not shrink back in fear. 
Instead, he pressed on and presented the most incredible defense. But it wasn't of himself. He didn't defend himself. He defended the gospel. Finally, in verses 51 through 53 of chapter 7, Stephen directly and pointedly charges the council and witnesses that were brought against him with being stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears because of the resistance to God and the rejection of the Messiah. Those present for the trial probably would no longer let Stephen continue, and I can only imagine just how palpable the anger and the rage must have felt in that room. Yet Stephen remained unafraid. He remained calm and firm because he was led by the Holy Spirit and empowered by Christ. So today's text and the study that we'll walk through is the next part of the story of Christ building his church. We'll walk through this together, but our big idea for today is don't fear, but stand firm till the end. Don't fear, but stand firm till the end. You guys know what spirit fingers are? Let's see spirit fingers. Come on, everybody with spirit fingers. Spirit fingers. Okay, good. We're doing spirit fingers to get our, our fingers and our hands limbered up because we're going to be moving around the text quite a bit today. So get, get your Bibles ready, have your fingers ready, and let's look at three ways that I, that you, will stand firm to the end. First, we'll stand firm to the end by understanding that men will reject. We'll stand firm to the end by understanding men will reject. We see there's some very clear examples of, of the rejection of that counsel as we walk through this text. In fact, in verse 54, we see the first part of that when they say, uh, now when it reads, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. We shouldn't be surprised when people are angered with the truth. Just like we read in verse 54, they became angry from hearing the truth and they weren't just a little bit angry. They were a lot angry. The text tells us that they were enraged, and they were enraged because they had been cut to the heart. They had been cut to the quick. The fire of anger burned hot in them, and they were completely out of control with anger. They hated this Christ and the truth of their own blasphemous actions, but they had already committed to those. They were being confronted then with their sin. The world Stephen found himself in was a a world that hated Jesus and hated him because of his bold proclamation of Jesus Christ. They were stark raving mad. They were incredibly angry. And does that not sound like the world that we live in today? A world that is angered, seems like about anything, but especially the truth. Are we surprised by this? And we shouldn't be. Turn with me to John 15, 19. Go to John 15, 19. And there you see where John writes, if you are of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. See, John tells us right here uh, in this writing that, that, that Jesus chose us out of the world and therefore the world will hate us. John MacArthur says it much better than I can put it on, uh, on the anger towards Stephen from a, a sermon of his. He writes that, or he uh, preached that Stephen had indicted them as blasphemers and activated their fury. They are past feeling. They are apostates. They are damned by their continuous willful rejection. They have hardened their hearts against the truth. They have rejected the miracles and the words of Jesus. Not very long before this, they have rejected the testimony, the gospel preaching of the apostles. They've rejected the powerful witness of the early church. They have rejected the messages and the ministry and the miracles of Peter. 
They have rejected the miracles and the message of this man, Stephen, and their rejection is so fixed and so settled and so deep and so profound and so unalterable that the only response they can possibly have to another message of the gospel that indicts them for their iniquity is fury, absolute and outright fury. You see, they couldn't see past their own anger. In fact, the text tells us that they ground their teeth. Make the, can you grind your teeth? Like this, that's right. They ground their teeth. Some other versions recorded that they gnashed their teeth. And have you guys heard the gnashing of teeth somewhere else? Does that sound familiar? Yeah, absolutely. In Luke 28, or sorry, in Luke 13, verse 28, we read this. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. There will be great sadness and pain, of course, for those not in heaven for eternity. They will be weeping. But much more than that, there will be anger. They'll be angry because they see those that are in heaven. They'll be angry because they have been judged to hell for eternity. This anger will be unending. The gnashing of teeth is just there for a reflection of this hot and intense anger. They will continue in that rage for eternity. And we see this in the faces of those getting ready to, Steve Stone, uh, to stone Stephen. Quick question. As we think about anger, anger, who here can process information well when you're angry? Who hears things well or who here understands truth when angry? Please let me know if you can. I've never been able to do that. I usually just see red when I'm angry, right? My son Steve, or my, I don't have a son Steve. <laughs> who is that? I got Stephen on the brain. Misty, there's something we'll have to talk about after the service. No, no, no. My son Tavian and I, our 11-year-old, he and I were talking about this very thing on Friday. And what we talked about is that when we're angry, we don't see the truth. We don't hear the truth. We can't think clearly. Anger prevents us from thinking rightly. In fact, we're told that uh, in James, we're told by James in, in chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, Slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We are not righteous when we're angry. We don't see right. We don't hear right. We don't process information right. We don't know the truth. We certainly don't see the truth when it's presented to us. So we shouldn't be surprised when others are angered by the truth, but we should also not be surprised when some just stop listening to the truth. Let's go back to uh, chapter 7 here. In verse 57, we see, but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at them, at him. They stopped their ears. This is a spiritual battle. Satan is constantly and consistently trying to undermine what God has done and is doing. He literally is working to make it so that unbelievers cannot see or hear the truth. We know this because the word tells us in second Corinthians Chapter 4, verse 4, Paul writes, In their case, the God of this world, the God of this world being Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan is actively trying to, bl- to mind the, or, sorry, blind the, the minds of the unbelievers. There is a concerted effort here to conceal the truth from the unsaved. For this reason, the gospel is likely to be offensive to some people who will literally close off their hearing or even cover their ears. Raise your hand if you have a small child or have had small children before. A lot of us, yeah. What do they do when they don't want to hear what you're telling them? 
Yeah, they cover their ears, right? They cover their ears and scream. I'm not going to scream, but they cover their ears so they can't hear what you're saying. Right now, I'm pretty sure Jamie's making fun of me, but I can't hear him because I'm covering my ears. There will be simply, there will simply be others that don't have ears for the truth, that will not listen. We should not be surprised by that. We shouldn't be surprised when people are angry when they hear the truth. We shouldn't be surprised when people won't hear the truth, but we should also be prepared that some will oppose the truth. Let's go back to the text. Verse 57 says, but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. We see opposition to the things of the Lord all around us. There's been a broad attack on God and our culture. There's been an attack on creation, marriage, family, and the value of human life itself. Protests against Ten Commandments being posted in public spaces, the removal of crosses, social media attacks on Christian organizations, the indoctrination of children in our schools is all a result of the spiritual attack, the battle that swirls around us. The hostility to the things of God is not accidental. It's not happenstance. It's not coincidence. There is an intentional attack on the gospel of Jesus Christ because the gospel is true. So we shouldn't be surprised by this. And Jesus actually tells us this when he says, whoever is not with me is against me, Matthew 12, 30. And in Luke 21, 17, Jesus tells us, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. In the case of Stephen, he was not just opposed. He was not just hated. He was violently opposed and attacked. We see where the text says that they rushed together at him. And this was a mad and crazed movement towards Stephen. In fact, it's interesting, I learned this while studying for this, that the, the Greek word rush that was used in this passage is the same Greek word that's used in Matthew 8.32 when we read the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea. Of course, this was after that demons were cast into the pigs by Jesus. It's a mad rush. They were, these pigs were rushing towards the cliff. This is the same kind of rush, this mad rush, this mad angry rush that we see uh, at those coming at Stephen. This violent opposition is without reason and void of truth, and it was deranged. I would offer that we should not be surprised by opposition because we were told we should be ready. I was uh, in law enforcement about a decade ago. You guys can probably tell that. What is one thing you notice in that photo about me that you don't see in my person right now? I don't know, probably the hair, right? I had more hair. Yeah, I definitely had more hair, right? When I was in law enforcement with the Fishers Police Department years ago, I became accustomed to the idea of training to be mentally prepared for situations I may face. Very rarely did I ever encounter a situation, no matter how serious, that I was not ready for from training or that I hadn't mentally prepared for. I was always ready with what tactics I use, what I would say. I even have the muscle memory today uh, of where everything was on my tool belt here. Sometimes I even still try to place my, even 10 years later, try to place my arm on something that's not there. But I remember that my, my firearm was here. My magazine pouches were here. I can reach for my cuffs right here. They're not really in here, but that's where they were. I can reach for medical gloves here. It's all just still natural because I built up that muscle memory over years. I've chased bad guys on foot and murderers in cars. I've testified in court countless times, and I've made traffic stops on busy highways. I've changed some tires for some old ladies. I got a really sweet note one time, actually, from an old lady that Misty was with me. We had stopped. I was off duty, and we changed a tire. A really sweet note from her. 
I've also had to tell families in the middle of the night, though, that their loved ones had died. All this training and building up a muscle memory was done so that I wouldn't have to think about where I should be looking, who I should be watching, what tools I should be using, what tactics I should use. It was all to be second nature. It would have been foolish for me to approach that job without having studied statutory law and case law. It would have been foolish to do that job without understanding the driving dynamics of a police car or fully understanding police procedure and department policy for situations we faced. But as I look back at, at my career in law enforcement, that handsome dude up there, and I was blessed with a great career. It wasn't my intellect. It wasn't my tactics. It wasn't even my excellent physique that protected me or led to right outcomes. It was the grace of God. Amen. We talk a lot about prayer here. It's kind of important to us. Some distinctives were up on the screen when Jamie was doing announcements. We believe in fervent prayer. We believe in prayer that depends on God and expects him to move. The thing about prayer is that it should be like breathing. We shouldn't have to think about doing it. It should be our conditioned response. We should have prayer muscle memory built up. If we don't train ourselves to pray first, then we typically don't pray first, but instead we act based on our own wisdom and our own volition, which if you're me, goes sideways quick. I would tell you that preparation for persecution is just the same. If we first fail to recognize that opposition will come and then we fail to train ourselves to first rely on the Spirit, right? Not ourselves, the Spirit. We will be self-guided in our answer. You ask, maybe you don't ask, but I'm going to ask for you. What do we gain by depending on Christ for our response for persecution? Glad you asked. Or I asked on your behalf. Let's go to Luke chapter 21, verses 12 through 19. Turn over to Luke chapter 21, 12 through 19. I love hearing the pages of the Bible turn. That is, what a wonderful sound. So these are Jesus' words and what he says, But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. This should sound familiar. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Catch what Jesus said here in verse 14. He said, settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. We've got to be resolved ahead of time that we will answer in the spirit so that we will speak wisdom that none of our adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Like my law enforcement example, it would be foolish to think that we will grow in faithfulness to Christ without doing the things that help us grow in faithfulness to Christ. We must develop personal spiritual disciplines in our daily lives that include prayer, believing that prayer is powerful, study and meditation of the word, knowing that scripture is sufficient, meaning that God's word contains everything we need to know to live a faithful Christian life. And we also have to have quiet time with the Lord to abide in and behold Christ. We do that so that when push comes to shove, you and me, we rely on Jesus and not ourselves. So as we think about our first point, 
Understanding that men will reject, here are two questions for us to ponder. Am I ready to defend the gospel? Am I ready to defend the gospel? And have I decided that I am ready to face persecution? Am I ready to defend the gospel because I'm intentional about personal training? We as guys in our small group talk about this all the time, developing personal spiritual disciplines. We have to have those built into our lives so that we can abide in Christ more. I would also say, have I determined that I'm ready to face persecution? Have I recognized that persecution for Christ will come? Let's not be surprised by that. Let's not be caught off guard. And am I willing to face it knowing that it is not by my power I will face it, but by Christ? Because unlike my, my law enforcement example that required a lot of different muscle memories to build up, where things were on the tool belt, what to say in court, things like that, we really only have one muscle memory, memory to develop here. And that is to be fully reliant on the Lord in our lives. Not independent, but fully dependent on Him. So, I'll stand firm till the end by understanding men will reject. But now for the really fun part, I'll stand firm till the end by believing Jesus is with me. Not only is Jesus with us, but from Pentecost forward... When we place our faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we receive the Holy Spirit. For those that have placed our faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit lives within us, guiding us, comforting us, providing counsel to us. As Holy Spirit-filled people, we should not be tossed around by fear and emotion, but can remain peace-filled and calm even in the most terrifying and anxiety-producing circumstances. By the way, that's countercultural, Right? We see much of our culture when faced with difficult circumstances completely get tossed around by their emotions. Because of the Holy Spirit in us, we are not to be tossed around in the same way. Do you guys remember what the fruit of the Spirit is? Let's just say it together, shall we? It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As ambassadors of Christ, I would say that's what what people should see from us. That's the fruit that we should have because of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's evidence of the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. We see this clearly exemplified in Stephen. In chapter 6, verse 15, we read, All who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Last service, Jamie said that... uh, When we think of a face of an angel, we should think of his. I would say maybe that's the case for Courtney, especially. But I think of a baby's face, a smiling face, a calm face when I think of the face of an angel, right? That's the presence of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at the contrast then between Stephen and the others. We see the accusers there giving full vent to their anger. Remember, they're so angry that they are gnashing their teeth at him. Remember the gnashing, you know, how to, right? Gnashing face. They're gnashing their teeth at Stephen, ready to kill him. Stephen, on the other hand, is controlled and peaceful, full of peace as he keeps his gaze fully fixed on the glory of God. Let's let our uh, eyes fall in verse 55 and read this together. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. How beautiful is that? Like, think about those words. 
He was full of the Holy Spirit, and he gazed into heaven, and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Stephen didn't just start living in that moment in the Spirit. He had been living a Spirit-filled life for a while. We see evidence of this in Acts 6.10 where we read, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the Spirit with which he was speaking. The Holy Spirit gives wisdom for our words and calm for our demeanor. Keep those fingers ready because we're going to go over to Luke 12, 11 real quick. Luke 12, 11. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will help us get the words out when we are called to defend the gospel. The Holy Spirit will teach you in that, that very hour what you ought to say. This passage is a great reassurance. We don't have to be anxious about being able to answer because the Holy Spirit will be there with us to give us the answer. We can believe that Jesus is with us because of the presence of the Holy Spirit lives in our lives, and we can believe that Jesus is with us because of his strength in us. How can we be sure of this? Let's go to 1 John 4, 4. In 1 John 4, 4, we read this, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Jesus who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And in those moments of opposition and persecution for the sake of Christ, we are blessed. We see in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 14, that, that Peter encourages us with, with this truth. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of, of, or the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Not only is Jesus with us, but we're blessed if we're insulted for the name of Christ. Not only can you believe that Jesus is with you, with us, because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and that His strength is in us, and that we are blessed when persecuted for Christ, but we can believe that Jesus is with us because He will receive us. He is with you because He will receive you. Let's go back to Acts chapter 7 and read verse 56. Verse 56 says, And He said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. We read a description of Stephen's vision of Jesus in his rightful place at the right hand of God. Stephen recognized that because of Christ being at the right hand of God, he provided a way of getting to the Father that is way more intimate and direct than what the outmoded temple ritual could provide. Indeed, the, the way Jesus provides is the only way. We all know the passage from John fourteen six when Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's also something, I don't know if you caught it, special about the way he described what Jesus was doing. He was standing. He wasn't sitting, right? Now, he wasn't still standing as if the work had not been finished, like he had just gotten to heaven and the work wasn't done, because clearly the work had been finished. But Jesus is standing because he's ready to receive his faithful servant, his martyred witness, Stephen. What an incredible encouragement is to know that Jesus is ready to receive us. In verse 59, as he's being stoned to certain death, Stephen is confident he'll be next with Christ when he exclaims, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. In those final moments of standing for Christ, 
We get to be more like Christ, just like Stephen. Luke records in verse 60, Stephen's final act, one that so resembles Christ. In his final breath, after falling to his knees, Stephen cries out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. See, Stephen didn't ask for his own rescue. He didn't ask for his own life to be protected. He didn't ask that his accusers would be put to death in that moment. He, being full of the Spirit, was more concerned for the accusers than himself. What a Christ-like moment. In his March 17, 1867 sermon, Charles Spurgeon said this of this act. He said, I have not yet declared all the glorious works of the Holy Spirit upon this first Christian martyr. In addition to the accuracy of his defense and the royalty of his manner and the happiness of his spirit, the Spirit of God was even more clearly seen in his holy and forgiving temper. In his dying prayer, he imitates his Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. He stood erect when he prayed for himself, and I know not that he spoke aloud, but when it came to praying for the multitude around him, his spirit acquired a greater vehemence and earnestness. We are told in the first place that he knelt down as if to make them see how he prayed, and then he prayed with a loud voice that they might hear as well as see. He spent his last expiring breath in a loud cry to heaven that his murder might not be laid at the door of his persecutors. O sweet spirit of the Son of Man, lingering still on earth, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, has been the pattern and the forerunner of 10,000 prayers of a similar heavenly character. Catch this last line. It has been the mark of a Christian to die patiently with forgiveness on his lips. Only possible because of Jesus Christ. Only possible when living in the Spirit. In Stephen's next moment, he would be in the glorious presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. Stephen modeled for us a disciple's life, abiding in Christ and relying on the Spirit. In fact, if Stephen were with us here this morning, if I were to introduce him, I would say, hello, everyone, meet my new friend Stephen. He is a spirit-filled man. I hope that will be said of us, that we would be introduced to spirit-filled people. So let's just ponder these, these questions. We've got two questions for us to think about here. First of all, do I believe that Jesus is and will be with me? Do I believe that Jesus and will be with me? And do I believe that the eternal reward is better than anything in the here and now? See, these are things we have to decide ahead of time. We have to decide that we're more interested in the eternal than the temporal. We have to decide that the eternal reward outweighs anything that this world has to offer. So I'll stand firm till the end by understanding men will reject I will understand, or I will stand firm till the end by believing Jesus is with me, and I will stand firm till the end by knowing the church will advance. We get to be part of Christ building his church. I think that's exciting. You guys excited by that? I'm excited by that. In fact, as disciples, we're commissioned to be part of the work. We're told to be part of the work. Look at the example of building the church through Stephen's life. His life ultimately culminated with an incredible Christ-like moment. We can be confident of the work of Christ and the gospel by evaluating Stephen's life. In Stephen's example, albeit an extreme one, he helps us understand what it means to be a disciple of Christ. As he grew in faithfulness to Jesus, he began to think more like Jesus and desire more like Jesus, the things that Jesus desires. 
Stephen's faithfulness was not a result of his own works, self-determination, or will. It was only possible because of the power of the gospel in his life. Not only can we look at Stephen's life and be confident of the work of the gospel and the advance of the church, but we can also look at the story of Saul. In verse 58, we read, Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. I am positive that Saul never forgot the image of the stoning of Stephen and the witnesses who, prior to taking Stephen's life, laid their garments at his feet. You guys ever watch movies with fight scenes in them? Like in a bar? What do you know is getting ready to happen when you start seeing this? It's getting ready to be on, right? The fight is on. It's getting ready to get violent. I am sure that that image of the the garments being thrown at his feet prior to the violent death of Stephen never left his mind. I'm sure it had to have been, been seared into his memory. We know that he gave a nod to it. Not only did he see it, but he approved of it. Verse 8, 1 tells us that he approved of his execution, and, and Saul didn't stop there. In verse 8, 3, we read this. Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This was, of course, until he encountered Christ on the road to Damascus. Then the persecutor Saul would become the persecuted Paul. Jump over with me to Acts chapter 9, just uh, one page over, verses 15 through 16. Jesus, speaking of Saul, says, He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. In the coming weeks, we're going to hear more about this. But you know what happens. Saul becomes Paul a hero of the Christian faith. And I'm sure that Stephen's life and death had a profound impact on Saul. In fact, I'm not the only one that thinks that. Theologian Augustine, or Augustine, or whatever it is, when speaking of the impact Stephen must have had on Saul, is quoted with this. The church owes Paul to the prayer of Stephen. That's powerful. So we see the advancing of Christ's church in the life of Stephen, and also the conversion, the radical work of Saul converting to Paul. We also see it, though, in the preaching of the gospel by the disciples that have been scattered. We can have confidence in knowing that Christ will build his church. Let's go to that second part of Acts Acts 8, verse 1, where Luke writes, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the the apostles. And then jump down to verse 4. Chapter 8. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. See, they didn't stop, right? The increased persecution didn't stop the gospel from proliferating. It led to a more rapid advance of the church. And that work continues today, although sometimes it doesn't feel like it. It does. It continues today. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church, Christ's promise. And we get the privilege of being part of it. Now, you guys got a head start on this. Uh, the first service didn't get this, but do you guys remember what our mission is? We got to read it together. Our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the power of the gospel. We don't have a mission statement just because it's something that, that companies do and we want to be like them. We have a mission statement 
because it guides us. It clarifies for us. It filters out what we will and won't do. It helps us be intentional so we don't just slosh into this thing called ministry. It helps us know what to say yes and to no to. It, it tells us what we exist for, what we will do, and how we'll do it. We exist by glor- to glorify God. And what we'll do is make disciples. And how will we do it? Through the power of the gospel. So I'll just say this. If a key part of our mission is making disciples, I think it's good for us to be clear on what a disciple is. So we have a slide up here that helps us know what a disciple is. A disciple is one who's saved by Jesus and empowered by the Holy Spirit to grow into the image of Christ by beholding, abiding, and displaying him to the world. A disciple is someone who's been saved by Jesus, who has the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that grows in faithfulness to Christ by beholding, abiding, and displaying him to the world. I'm sure we'll spend some more time on this here in the, in the coming months. So Stephen must have been, or may have been our first Christian martyr, but he certainly wasn't the last. As Christians, we should know our history. We should know that there are stories of many of those that have come before us to pay the price for Christ. There are a lot of, lot of historical figures that I encourage you to study. If you want those names, let me know, because it's exciting to see how God has used people throughout the history of the church. But when Jim Elliott was martyred for the faith, he left behind his young wife, Elizabeth, and their one-year-old daughter, Valerie. Jim didn't know that day that it would be his last, but he and the others stood firm till the end. Those men who were attacked with spears had guns, but they had already decided that they would not kill the Akas because the Akas did not yet know Jesus. That is some incredible conviction. Years earlier, in a day in October 1949, Jim made a journal entry where he wrote something I think is really profound, and we have a copy or a picture of that journal entry there, where he says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You see, Jim had already decided what he would live his life for, what he would stand for, and ultimately what he would die for. Jim Elliott was resolved well before this event with what he would do with his life if it were threatened. But this story doesn't end there. Elizabeth and Valerie continued living near the Akas until 1960. In fact, two of the men that had speared Jim and the four others to death became Christians. The tribe even became so transformed by the gospel that not only did they have the Bible translated into their tribal language, but they changed the name from Akka, which meant naked or savage, to another name. Elizabeth Elliot writes in her book, Through the Gates of Splendor, some of the words to one of Jim's favorite hymns. This is, this is beautiful. She writes, we, we rest on thee, our shield and our defender. Thine is the battle, thine shall be the praise. When passing through the gates of pearly splendor, victors we rest with thee through endless days. We must be people that treasure Christ above all else. We must be a people that don't fear but stand firm to the end. <clears throat> Excuse me. Before we wrap up, let's just consider four questions for application. I would suggest you write these down, and that way you can take and ponder these. First, am I convinced that the gospel is the main thing? Am I convinced that the gospel is the main thing? And am I ready now with a defense of the gospel? Am I committed to standing firm in persecution? And finally, most importantly, am I resting in the promise of being with Jesus?
Stephen, Jim Elliott, and the others didn't just wake up one day, excuse me, prepared for martyrdom. They didn't just wake up saying, I'm ready to be martyred today. They lived lives of growing in faithfulness to Christ. Over time, they became more like Jesus in thoughts and desires. And what I most want to have really soak in today for us, and Stephen's example is really helpful for this, is that it's not about our own abilities, it's not about our own intelligence or physical prowess that prepares us for persecution, but it's living in the Spirit and abiding in Christ that will lead us to not fear but stand firm to the end. It's not us, but Christ in us. So as we close out our time, let's just take a few minutes to pray to ourselves these three things. Let's pray. First, give me resolve today to stand firm when faced with opposition. And then let's pray also to be present, that that God and Jesus would be present with me when in times of persecution, and that God would help me grow in faithfulness to Christ. Pray quietly those few things, and then I'll close us out. God, you are so, so, so good, and your, your steadfast love endures forever. And we are so thankful for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are thankful for how he strengthens us. We are thankful, Father, for your Holy Spirit that comforts us and guides us and counsels us. Help us be prepared to stand firm till the end as you help us grow to be more like Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Help us grow in faithfulness to our King. You're a good, good Father. And we thank you for all these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So church, let's live our lives in the spirit. Amen. Redemption, you are loved.